Tonight, we are in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. This is our last night in this book. I feel like we've gotten to know Malachi pretty well. This is the 15th sermon that I've preached in the book of Malachi. In the army, we have a saying, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And uh, we've really, like a sponge, squeezed these verses for everything that we can. I love expository, verse-by-verse preaching. I love learning about God. And if you like learning about God too, I'll strap in. It's going to be a good night. I will say that if you are new tonight, and maybe you're interested in hearing the other 14 sermons Maybe not. Uh, All the sermons are for free. You can find them on SoundCloud or through the app SoundCloud by searching Lynchburg City Church. So we are in Malachi 4, 4 4-6. And before we unpack the text, I would like to catch you up from what happened this past Sunday, this past Easter Sunday, and just quickly segue from last week's message to tonight's message because they're very much interconnected None of these Bible verses stand alone. There is an ongoing story that they are proclaiming and telling. And so in Malachi chapter 4, 1 to 3 from last week, Malachi, in closing this section, he comes and he makes an announcement. And he says that there is coming a day. A day is coming. Hasn't yet come yet, but it will come. In fact, I would argue that the day that Malachi says is coming has still not come. We still are waiting for it. But when it does come, it will come and it will be like a burning oven. And it will be intense. And it will be powerful. And for those who are wicked, and for those who are arrogant, It is not going to be a good day at all. They are going to be reduced to stubble. They are going to be like a tree that's been completely burnt to the ground on that day. But for the people of God, for those who belong to God, that same day, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a really, really great day for a couple different reasons. First and foremost, They will be escaping the burning oven aspect of it. They will be escaping this judgment aspect of it. And that's good. And the second thing that Malachi tells us that on this day, it will be a day of healing. He doesn't specify what sort of healing, but when we look at other passages of Scripture, and when we see this day In light of this return of Christ, we see that it regards healing in every aspect of the way. Physical, emotional, spiritual, total, complete healing. From the hurts and pains that we still carry with us, from the physical ailments that affect our body emotionally, Spiritually, every way, it will be total. 
It will be a day of healing, Malachi says, when it comes. And he says, that's really good. It's going to be a very exciting day. He actually compares that day, the, the people of God, to uh, newborn calves, which I, the imagery is kind of lost on me. I don't have a whole lot of calf interaction experience. But it's going to be awesome because they're going to be like newborn calves and they're out and they're just frolicking and doing other calf things running around. <laughs> and they're just excited. I guess calves like to run around and play. And it's going to be very exciting because on that day, on that day it will be a day of healing. On that day, all pain and all hurt and all grief and all sin will be forever conquered. It's really good news. But it's also good news because we'll get to be with God forever. We'll get to be with Jesus on that day. And Jesus is really great. Jesus is really awesome. In fact, if you have never met Jesus, I would love, after this sermon, to introduce you to Jesus. He's, he's great. He's awesome. And, uh, which is this great segue for People say, Lynchburg City Church, I'm not sure if I've heard of that. What's that all about? Every church is an all-about thing. We talked about this in the membership class today, but what's, what's it all about? I tell people, Lynchburg City Church is all about your happiness in Jesus, in a world that constantly says to find your happiness, find your joy, find your contentment, find your satisfaction in everything other than Jesus. Like, if only I... Had that relationship, oh, the satisfaction and contentment that would bring me of that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that job or that career or that house or whatever it is. So the world says, find your happiness in those things. I'm saying, no. Find your happiness in Jesus. So I want you to to see Jesus as more beautiful and more satisfying and more glorious, more more glorious, more desirable than anything else, because He is. So I I use the term that I've stolen from a well-known pastor. I, I say I'm a Christian hedonist. I'm a Christian hedonist. You say, well, that's really provocative and catchy. I'm like, yeah, that's why I use the term. I like it. Say Christian hedonist, what's that all about? Well, the Christ, being a Christian hedonist is ultimately about finding your happiness and joy in Jesus. That's what it's all about. The shortest definition is actually on your bulletin. You want a short definition of what a Christian hedonist is? It's on the front of your bulletin. It's been there every week. It says, for the chief end of man is to glorify God. How? By enjoying Him forever. I didn't make it up. Ancient Bible teachers did. 1635, the shorter Westminster Catechism, I believe. So it's this idea that we glorify what we enjoy. Do you enjoy Jesus or do you enjoy something other than Jesus, more than Jesus? I want you to see Jesus as more beautiful and more satisfying and more glorious, more wondrous, more thrilling than anything else this world has to offer you. Malachi says, a day is coming. It's going to be burning like an oven. It's going to be terrible for the people who don't belong to God. It will be simultaneously a great day for the people who do belong to God. Why? Because they avoid God's wrath. Why? Because it will be a day of total, complete healing. Why? Because one day they'll get to just be with Jesus.
So this is a perfect segue for our text for tonight. Malachi chapter 4, 4 to 6. So I, I'm going to say some things that might catch you a little off guard tonight. Surprise. I'll read a direct quote to open the sermon. It comes from the New American Commentary. It's a very it's a trusted source. Um, a scholarly orthodoxy asserts that these final three verses were editorial additions to the book, perhaps as early as the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. I'll say that one more time, and then I'll break it down in case you're still lost. Scholarly orthodoxy asserts that these verses, these final three verses, were editorial additions to the book, perhaps as early as the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That is to say that there are some people who would argue that the final three verses that I'm going to be unpacking tonight were not written by Malachi. In fact, after Malachi wrote the book, someone came along and added these three verses after he wrote it. And I say that because I want to expose you to things that may be a little awkward and uncomfortable. Because I would rather you be exposed than you to be like a deer caught in the headlights when you're sharing the gospel with one of your unsaved friends and they, you know, they're pushing back and they mention something like this just to try to throw you off. Do we have to be concerned? I don't think so. And in case you're wondering, this isn't the first time or place in Scripture where such a statement has been made when it comes to editorial editions. In fact, a well-known editorial edition would be Mark chapter 16, 9 to 20. Another well-known editorial edition to the Bible would be John chapter 8, 1 to 11. That's a well-known story. Jesus, he draws his finger in the sand and he says, with the woman caught in adultery, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Those would be, I guess, more well-known passages where people would say that those stories are probably not written by John and Mark. Now, I say that once again is because I want to prepare you. My job is to teach you the Bible. My job is to, in a very Colossians 1, 29 way, 28 to 29, presents you mature in Christ. And I want you to be prepared. Should someone challenge you and say, well, those passages weren't written anyways. And they, they try to throw you off your game, maybe as you're trying to tell them about the hope that you have in Christ. And so what you need to understand is, one, okay, do I need to freak out? No, you don't need to freak out. So if I'm not freaking out, you don't need to freak out. Second, when it comes to, and I'm going to address the passage, let's say, in John and Mark first, and then I'll come back to the Malachi one as far as uh, the authenticity of the text. And no, this is not a textual criticism lesson, though that would be fun, but I don't have the time to do that for tonight. But as far as the, the John passage that I mentioned and the Mark passage, it is widely held within Protestantism that those were editorial editions. You say, where do you get that from? Well, the fact begins here. Our English Bible, these 66 books, uh, these are copies of copies. That is to say that we do not possess today any of the original autographs, that is, the original manuscripts. You say, is that a problem? I don't think so, and this is why. Because what we do possess is some nearly 20,000 plus manuscript copies of the New Testament alone. So, well, 20,000 is a lot. It is a lot, especially compared to other ancient works of literature. Now, you would think with 20,000 copies of copies of copies, 
like the game of telephone, the more people in the circle that you whisper the message to, the better the odds it would be lost in translation. With 20,000 copies, you would expect to see major inconsistencies when you compare all 20,000 together. And what you see is not that, actually, at all. Josh McDowell, in his book, More Than a Carpenter, cites that of the 20,000, when examined side by side, they have somewhere around a 97 to a 99% accuracy rate, which is pretty good, because I don't think you're going to do too good if you told whispered something to someone and had told it to 20 other thousand people and the message came around, it would probably get lost. 97 to 99% accuracy rate. So you say, where do you get off, Joe, in saying that John 1, excuse me, John 8, 1 to 11, the story of the woman caught in adultery, that that is perhaps an editorial edition? Well, actually, if you open your Bible, it may say something to the effect of, at least in that John 8 passage, the oldest manuscripts that we have don't actually show this story. So when we look at all 20,000 copies, in the most earliest ones, closest to the time of writing, that particular story, where Jesus draws the lion in the sand, is omitted from it. We don't find that story until later documented copies, which leaves much to doubt that that was originally a part of the story. Is that a problem? No. I don't think it is. I don't think it's a problem no more, no more than I think the possibility of the last three verses of Malachi being an editorial edition. Now the reason I don't think it's a huge problem whatsoever is because it doesn't affect any major doctrinal issues. It doesn't affect salvation issues as well as any tier one sort of issues whatsoever. Now, at least for the final three verses in Malachi, in coming across this, because this was news to me that someone thought that they might be editorial editions, I was unable, unlike some of the other passages that I've mentioned, to find what I felt like was strong enough argumentation for them being an editorial edition. Therefore, tonight, as I unpack the text, I will unpack it with the presupposition that Malachi, in fact, did write it. Why did I say that? because I thought it was interesting, and because I want you to be prepared in case someone brings that up to your attention. Whether it's the last three verses in Malachi, whether it's Mark chapter 16, whether it's John chapter 8, I want you to be prepared. I don't want you to be caught off guard. I don't want you to be rattled. My job is to prepare you. My job is to teach you the Bible, not to stand up here and tell you jokes. Sometimes I get lucky and you laugh, but that's not my job. So, that being said... Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Let's marinate on that for a second. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Horeb... was an alternative name to Sinai. It had strong associations with the covenant God made with Israel. See Deuteronomy 5.2. And when I say see, I don't mean the letter C. I mean reference Deuteronomy 5.2. So he says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. This phrase, the law of my servant Moses, occurs nowhere else in Scripture. Most certainly... 
refers to the Pentateuch, that is the Greek expression of the first five books, also known as the Torah, which just translates to be law. It refers to general instruction. So what Malachi does in this closing passage is he says, remember, and he cites an event that they all would have been very familiar with. He says, remember when they came out of Egypt? Remember when they camped at Sinai? Remember when Moses went to the top to receive the law? Remember. Now, without being a pastor, a theologian, army chaplain, a scholar, whatever, you think, why might he be saying, and this is rhetorical, I don't need a response, but why might he perhaps be saying to remember? And perhaps you say, well, it says to remember because maybe they have a tendency to forget. Maybe they have a tendency to not care. Maybe they have a tendency to neglect God's instruction. And if you came to that realization, you would be absolutely right. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Remember God's instruction. Remember God's way. Why? Because throughout this story, they have not done that. Throughout this story, they have seriously deviated from God's way. This story starts off in Malachi 1-2. God says, listen, I love you. And then the rest of it is, but you guys have really dropped the ball. I love you, but yeah, you guys aren't doing so hot. All types of issues pop up within this story. These aren't isolated verses that stand alone. I want to be clear. These all are linked together. And throughout this story, there's issues of waning faith. There's issues of spiritual apathy. You know, I I just don't really care. Disrespect to God, contempt for God, empty religious ritual, like just going through the motions. Okay, like I had to go to church today because I slept in and I got to tell my mom that, you know, I went. uh, So I just got to, you know, check the box. I go through the motions. That's a major issue here in this story. Because the people have been substituting religiosity. They've been substituting religious activity for true worship. Listen, it doesn't matter how high you lift your hands when the band is singing. God knows whether your heart is in it or not. And for all intents and purposes, for those people who are just going through the motions, it doesn't matter how high you lift your hands, how loud you sing, You can honor God with your lips, but for many people, their hearts are far from God, and they're just singing and worshiping themselves. And that's an issue here, and a big overarching theme throughout this story, as well as betrayal of marriage vows, getting involved in relationships they shouldn't be getting into, and lots of applications there. If you guys remember that Malachi 2 sermon, go back and listen to that. That one's a lot of fun. People were getting involved in romantic relationships that they had no business getting involved in. They were, they were getting involved in romantic relationships with people who were not like-minded, with people who did not love God. Bad, bad idea. Bad advice. Bad advice, right? And it's all, oh, but they have such a good heart. They're really, really open. Um, if you only gave them a chance. Nope. It's just dumb. It's foolish to do that. Unfortunately, those are some of the same mistakes that we make today. 
this, that's chapter two. That's, that was a, like I said, that was a great fun sermon to preach. Um, other things, neglecting the needs of others, greed, injustice, just this overwhelming obsession of materialism. All issues that Malachi suggests can find their solution, at least in part, by Oh, there it is, verse 4, chapter 4. Remembering the law of my servant Moses by remembering God's instruction to his people, by remembering God's way. Remembering God's way. And when it comes to remembering God's way, I just want to clarify some things here because this can sometimes be misunderstood. Normally people don't deviate from God's way overnight. They don't normally just wake up and think, I'm just going to do a 180 degree turn. It normally starts very gradually. It normally starts, here I am, here's God's way, we keep going, and or here, we deviate a little, and then we rationalize or we justify, or Satan comes, he says, that's oh, okay, it's okay, it's okay, look, you're really close, don't, don't worry about it. Like if it was here, you could worry. You're only here. Don't want to worry about it. So it gets swept under the rug. We don't deal with those things. Like, one of my passions is young guys. I love young dudes, especially trying to help them reach their full potential in Christ. And I've been blessed and had the opportunity of having a lot of older guys uh, pour into me and help me uh, strive to do that. And I talk to guys a lot in lust-free living, and usually it never starts off where I met this person, had our first date, and then we just had sex. It usually doesn't start off that way. It usually starts off very slowly, a few boundaries get broken, and then we become more familiar. We become more comfortable. We become more desensitized with that sin. Could be sexual sin, could be lying, could be stealing. It could be anything. And that deviation starts so small, and then before we realize it, we have completely neglected the way of God. We have completely neglected God's instruction. We have completely veered off course, and it seems like God is 10,000 miles away from us. And now, yeah, now I'm in some trouble, and now I'm in a jam, and now I need God, as if you didn't need Him earlier or something. And that's what's happened here. The issues that these people are in, and I listed off a lot of them, it didn't just happen overnight. It started, and year after year, spiritual apathy, not caring, neglecting God's instruction, neglecting God's way. And finally God, He says, okay, that's enough. I'm sending Malachi to come and tell them the truth. And some people say, man, I, I, wish, I wish I had a Malachi to tell me the truth. I wish I could just hear God's voice. You have! If you're hearing my voice right now, you have heard! You say, I want to hear God's voice out loud. Read the Bible out loud! You're hearing His warning right now! Repent! Stop! Go back to God's way! 
Don't forget God's instruction. Don't forget the law of my servant Moses. Come back to me. I love you. Come back to me. That's this story. Quit making excuses. Quit neglecting my law. Quit justifying your sin and remember my law. Come back to me. I love you if you only repent. And yet it is more than I do this and I don't do this. Some of you grew up and it was very much presented to you in such a duty and obligation. Read your Bible. Why? You're supposed to. Pray. Why? You're supposed to. Go to church. Why? You're just supposed to. Just just do it, right? It was like Nike had infiltrated every area of mom and dad, and we just heard, just just do it. That's just what you're supposed to do. And so what we have to come to terms with is when he says, remember the law of my servant Moses, remember God's instruction, remember God's way. It's not just do this, don't do this, but it is seeing God's way as just better. It is a scene with the eyes of our heart. God's way is is better. It's more satisfying. His way is more beautiful. His way is more lovely than anything else. Because all sin, ultimately, is a preferring of something else to God. All sin is a preferring of something other than God to God. Lots of applications there. It is saying, God, I find when I'm alone in my room and I open my computer screen, I look at things I shouldn't look at, I'm finding that is more beautiful and more satisfying and more glorious and more enjoyable than you. Or when you cross over boundaries in your relationship or when you lie or steal or could be any sin. Like all sin is a preferring of something other than God to God himself. It's saying, go away, I don't need you. I like this, I love this more than you. It's like giving him the middle finger. So that's offensive. Yep, sin is offensive. So he says, remember my way. Remember God's way. And it is, for some of us, it is praying and saying, God, help me to see your way, your instruction, your law as, as just more beautiful. Help me to see you as better than anything else. It needs to be more than just do this, don't do this. Read my Bible. Why? I'll tell you what. I want to read my Bible for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons I want to open this up and read it is because I want to get to know God. I want to get to know this guy named Jesus because he's amazing. I want to get to know him and see him. And man, I read this and I feel like if he was here, but oh, Jesus! Because I feel like I already know you so well. And in knowing him, we treasure him more. And he becomes more beautiful. It's not just don't do this, do this. Because that doesn't address the heart issue. Because you can replace one sin for another. It's eradicating the root of the problem and replacing it with the gospel. And it's not just an idea, but it's seeing him as better. As more enjoyable more legit, whatever, than anything else. Remember God's law. Remember God's way. Remember God's instruction. And then he says this in verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, 
the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Awesome day. It sounds like something we, we did already. Oh yeah, the introduction from last week. A day is coming. It has not yet happened. But before that day arrives, I'm going to send Elijah. Elijah is no stranger to us here. We have already seen him in chapter 3, verse 1. And I'm not going to argue for why chapter 3, verse 1 is referring to Elijah. I did that in that sermon. And so he's saying, before that day comes, which will be really bad news for those who don't know God, and really great news for those who do love God, before that day comes, Elijah, I'm going to send him. And then it says, And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers. So Elijah's ministry, according to Malachi 3.1, is to prepare the way of the Lord. Well, how does he do that? Well, he does that at least in part by Malachi 4.6. By turning the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. It is the ministry of both repentance and reconciliation. See, Malachi is Israel. And he's writing this letter around 460 B.C. It was full of a lot of people, a lot of men committing acts of treachery and injustice against one another. See 2.10.3.5. But Elijah's Israel, Elijah's Israel would be full of righteousness. It would be full of peace. And his day would be one of repentance and reconciliation. You may remember the story from Luke chapter 1, 16 to 17. Uh, the angel Gabriel comes. He makes an announcement to Zechariah that his son John would, and I quote, turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Luke 1, 16-17. D.L. Bach observes that Luke sees John as this Elijah-like character, but he falls short of completely identifying him as, John the Baptist, as Elijah, leaving room for Potentially a further eschatological fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. As one commentator explains, as a result of Christ's rejection by Israel, there is to be a yet future and final fulfillment of the predictions of Malachi and the day of the Lord. And then he says, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The warning which Malachi closes with, it's not a warning of the Lord's coming, it's a warning of the Lord's curse. The issue would be essentially is, how do you relate to Jesus? How do you relate to Jesus? Is, is Jesus just a way to get to heaven and nothing more? Is that all he is to you? I've said this numerous times. If all Jesus is to you is a way to get to heaven and nothing more than that, and you treat Jesus like an ATM machine, you come to Him as to what you can get from Him. You don't come because you want Jesus. You don't become because you truly see Him as better than anything else. You come because you just want to take, because in a Romans 1-like way, you would rather 
worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. You exchange the truth about God for a lie. If, if all Jesus is to you is just a, a ticket to go to heaven, I'll tell you right now, you do not have eternal life if that's all he is to you. John 17, 3 says this, and this is eternal life, that you may know him and Jesus Christ whom I have sent. And that's not a, okay, I know all the right answers, I know the Sunday school rehearsed things, but I know him. You know him as what? As a stranger who comes and knocks on your door? How, how do you know him? When you look at the cross, is it, yeah, I've heard that story. Or is it captivating? Wowing? Amazing? With all types of implications. So this final warning is of this curse that potentially awaits them. And the issue really surrounds how do they relate to him? How do the people relate to him? Do they love him? Do they fear him? Do they follow him? Do they follow his way? Do they follow his instruction? And so he says, if the future Elijah, if he is not heeded, if, if we don't heed Elijah's words, who is to come, if we reject that warning, then we will suffer the same fate as the people in chapter 4, verse 1. That on that great and awesome day, it's going to suck to suck for some of us. It's going to be terrible. And I understand that for many of us, it's a battle every day. It's a battle. God's way or my way. God's way or my way. God's way or my way. And every day, Satan is trying to pull you from God's way, from God's instruction, from God's path. Every day he's coming against you. Every day he's attacking you. You may not realize it. Just assume it. And our hearts are so prone to wander. They really are. We're going to sing that song in a second. But our hearts are just so prone to wander away from God. I wake up in the morning and I want to read my Bible and I'm, I just open it and I'm like, I don't have a desire. I, I, I want to do other things. Like I'm thinking about this, uh, this situation with money or I'm thinking about the situation in the class or this guy or this girl or whatever it may be and, and I'm just not focused and my heart isn't inclined to God. It's just, it's, it's just fragmented in a million different ways. And so what do you do? Well, you do what the psalmist did in Psalms 86, 10 to 11. He says, Lord, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name because God, my heart's going in a million different directions right now and not one of those is inclined to you. My heart is just so prone to wander from your way, from your instruction, from your path. God, help me. You wrestle with it in prayer just as the psalmist did. You don't just say, oh, well, not feeling it today. I guess it's not a Holy Spirit day. We'll try tomorrow. You don't do that. You battle through it. You battle with others in community. The band's going to come. I want to pray. God, we love you. You're a good God, and we, uh, we worship you and we praise you. And help us, God. Give us united hearts.
Give us a sensitivity to sin. Give us a sense of urgency for those that we care about and know and love who have very much deviated from your way, your law, your instruction. We need your help, God. And so I pray as St. Augustine prayed so long ago. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Enable us, God, to do the things, to live our lives the way that you want us to, God. Help us, God. Help us. Help us. We need your help, Jesus. Amen.